Coming up today, how RNA could help keep food fresh for longer, and we explain why Salt Bay is the ultimate content machine. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amelia Tate. Hi. This was the week when Elon Musk seemingly sold around $5 billion of Tesla shares in response to the results of a Twitter poll. Analysis of the sale shows that Musk had, in fact, committed to much of the sale in a pre-arranged trading plan made in September. This was also the week when NASA confirmed a small delay to its mission to put humans back on the moon. The boss of the space agency said the mission will now take place in 2025 rather than a year earlier in 2024. And it was finally the week when a doctor from the Isle of Wight discovered a new species of dinosaur. People familiar with that part of the UK will know there's not a whole bunch of things to do in the Isle of Wight. So Jeremy Lockwood had set himself the task of cataloguing every single iguanodon bone discovered on the island. And he ended up finding a funny looking nasal bone that turned out to be from an entirely new species of dinosaur. So he got got to name it. So well done, Jeremy. I feel I must tediously leap to the defence of the Isle of Wight as a, as a truly magical place where I spent much of my childhood. There's so much to do there, Matt. <laughs> like documenting iguanodon bones, which you, which you love to spend your childhood doing. Exactly. I am so jealous that Jeremy Lockwood got there before me. Congratulations to him. Uh, you might have noticed an, a new person, a new voice. Welcome, Amelia Tate. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Amelia's on Wired's Culture Desk through until the end of the year, so you'll be hearing her voice on the podcast a little bit and also reading a lot more of her stuff on the website. So, no pressure, Amelia, but what did you learn this week? Yes, well, um, I went to a slightly strange conceptual dinner last night uh, where I was served a dish featuring both sheep and seaweed. Uh, And the chef told a wonderful story about how a few centuries ago, some Spanish sheep were shipwrecked on the coast of Britain and had to survive off seaweed, uh, which, of course, being a discerning journalist, I googled and could find no evidence for at all. Uh, But what I did find out is that there are some Scottish sheep who live entirely off seaweed uh, because in the 19th century, the farmers were basically trying to save as much land as possible for crops. Uh, So they punted the sheep to the beach Uh, And they now subsist, survive on seaweed. Um, And because that's so unusual, scientists have been studying them for two decades, which is quite a long time to study sheep, I feel. Um, And it appears that seaweed has an effect on their digestive system, which means they produce less methane. Uh, So at least a partial answer to the climate crisis might be feeding cattle seaweed. So do do the sheep taste different as a result? Like they've got a different (laughs) diet, so I guess they taste more like the sea? You know, I don't eat sheep often enough to Mm. be able to tell. I'll have to do a controlled experiment, go back to the restaurant, eat some regular sheep, and I'll get back to you on that one. Yep, come back and report next time. All right, thanks very much. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so I learned that, uh, well, what I learned is related to uh, something that we sort of already know, but um, so we're pretty well familiar with the idea that sitting down for long periods of time is bad for us and bad for our health overall. But the links, uh, when the links between uh, these two things first, and Matt, 
emerged in the 1950s, it was due to uh, bus drivers. So research has found that double-decker bus drivers were twice as likely to have heart attacks as their bus conductor colleagues. And it's really for the simple reason that the bus drivers were sat down for 90% of the shifts that they were working, while the conductors were climbing around 600 stairs each working day, keeping, keeping active. I have no follow-up questions. Thank you very much for your fact, Matt Burgess. It's been a while since we had a fact from one of our listeners, in fact, mainly because I haven't asked in ages. So what did you learn this week? Let us know on podcast at wired.co.uk and we'll read out some of the best on next week's show. For our first story this week, we're talking about food supplies and pesticides. Um, In the food production process, there's a lot of difficulties that farmers face. For instance, they're under pressure from companies they supply uh, food to to produce the right amounts and quantities of food. They need to make sure that they are making money and they need to make sure that what they're producing is healthy and edible and uh, to the right standards. Matt, one thing that can really mess things up for farmers is mould. But in particular, there is one big perpetrator that really worries farmers. Yeah, mould. That's what I'm bringing to the podcast today. Let's talk about mould and mouldy things. So yeah, that's totally right. So there's a lot of mould out there. But if you're a farmer, there is one particular mould that maybe keeps them up at night. So this is a mould called botrytis. And it's basically a really big problem because it's absolutely everywhere on every corner of the planet. And it munches through hundreds and hundreds of plant species, although soft fruits like grapes or strawberries are its favourite. And you'll probably be familiar with this. So if you've ever left a tub of strawberries in the fridge a little too long and you've come back and they're kind of, you know, they've got this like grey green mould, what I like to think of as the classic style of mould on them, that's probably botrytis. And obviously that's a bit of a pain on an individual level. But for the food industry, this is a really, really major problem. So this single species of mould is responsible for about at least $10 billion in damage annually. Some people say it's as high as $100 billion. And I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, it's something like the Journal of Plant Pathology. They do a ranking of the most important fungal pathogens. I check it out uh, on a regular basis. They described botrytis as the second most important mould out there. So we're talking about the second most important mould in the world. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty important mould in that case and uh, probably one that we're all familiar with, at least on that uh, very low level scale of um, sort of like stuff within our within our fridges. Um, and there's a lot of, when we're talking about this on an industrial scale, there's a lot of ways um, for farmers and people to tackle botrytis, but we're talking around this into sort of like the realm of fungicides and pesticides and the bigger problems with these types of chemicals and, and productions are slightly wet well known. Uh, Can you give us a bit of a recap on why these aren't ideal? That's right. So we're pretty familiar with the downsides of existing ways of controlling mould, kind of fungicides and pesticides. So readers will probably have heard of these problems before, listeners will have heard of these problems before. So they can build up in the environment, these pesticides, and that causes knock-on effects to other animals. So we know particularly this is a problem with bees and something called colony collapse disorder, which is basically when bee colonies kind of die and fade away. And we think that's related to a certain class of pesticides the EU is actually now outlawed. There's also this big problem with resistance. So we know that persistent use of pesticides can lead to weeds and pests and bugs and mold developing resistance and we've seen that with botrytis so there are certain strains that are getting much better at resisting pesticides 
And the reason why we're talking about this is this week you've been looking at new methods to create pesticides. So some scientists are looking to use RNA as a starting point to create new solutions. Um, And RNA may sound familiar because it's a key ingredient in some of the COVID-19 vaccines that we have. And as a recap, RNA is a molecule that's similar to DNA and is one of the fundamental building blocks of life. So how does this work when we're talking about pesticides and all of these types of uh, chemicals and productions? So this new style of creating pesticides is, is based on a quite a cool cellular trick that actually dates back you know really really long time at least as far as the last common ancestor of animals plants fungi and some other kind of slightly weird creatures so we're talking 1.5 billion years ago and some point around then we're not exactly sure when cells evolved this ability to chop up and destroy genetic material that had come from invading pathogens like viruses and what happens is that viruses basically dump this material that's called double-stranded RNA and they, it, it enters into the cell and they use that to uh, replicate their proteins within the cell. Now, cells developed this you know, defense against this mechanism. And what they did is when they detected this double-stranded RNA, they uh, hacked this RNA up into lots and lots of tiny different pieces, pieces, little pieces, and then molecules within the cell picked up these tiny chunks of RNA and used them as kind of wanted posters. They'd search around the, uh, the cell and look if there's any other matching stre- stretches of RNA that might be there. And if they found one, they'd chop up that uh, molecule as well. So essentially what you've got is this kind of search and destroy function within cells. They find uh, stretches of genetic information and they're like, great, let's find it, let's chop it up and let's make sure it's not a problem. And basically in the late 90s, scientists identified this process as called RNA interference. And quite quickly, they realised that this could be used uh, to make new pesticides. So basically, if you introduce RNA that imitate certain genes within a fungus, what you can do is you can instruct that fungus's cells to destroy its own mRNA and stop it from making crucial proteins. So essentially what you end up doing is you kind of trick a cell into destroying itself or at least switching off certain genes that are really important for how that cell functions, maybe how it reproduces or how it produces toxins. So you're basically making the cells attack themselves. Yeah, so we've got this really clever uh, process that's being used to sort of work in this new way. And if we go back to mould for a second, because we haven't talked about it for a little while now, um, where are companies applying this RNA to new pesticides and have they found a way to help reduce botrytis? Yeah, so there's one company that's working on an RNA spray against botrytis. So it's probably a few years away from being in the field um that well they are trialing it in the field at the moment but there's lots and lots of stages you need to go through when you're developing a new pesticide so that spray is in the works there are a couple more that are further down the line so there's an rna spray that targets this bug that's called the colorado potato beetle which is a really really big deal if you're a potato farmer i'm not but i'm assured that this is a pretty big pest for potatoes and that spray is being evaluated by the Environmental Protection Agency in the US, and they expect a decision on that will be made by the middle of 2022. Um, This same company called Greenlight Biosciences is also working on a spray that combats the Varroa mite, which is a widespread pest that is a really, really big deal for honeybee uh, farmers. And there's a handful of other sprays in the works. There's a couple of companies that are working on um, sprays against certain moths that infect cabbages and other crops like that. 
And there's also an alternative approach. There's a bunch of people that are saying, well, let's put RNA in sprays. There's also a different approach that says, maybe we can make plants uh, create this material themselves and we can essentially engineer plants so they express this RNA and in essence have this pesticide built into them. So there is actually a edited version of maize that already exists that's resistant against uh, something called corn rootworm which is a pretty nasty pest for for maize plants but there's a bit of a problem with doing it this way because at the moment those plants are classified as gmos and people are trying to work out a way of doing that that doesn't involve uh, making these uh, into gmos because obviously that's problem for lots of regulatory reasons so there's a few different approaches some people are saying great let's put it in sprays some people are saying no it's a much better idea to put it in the plants themselves those regulatory and, and probably ethical in some ways uh, questions and approaches that are happening, they may not also be the only problems around using this type of RNA spray either, right? You were talking earlier about uh, traditional pesticides, which are full of chemicals and sort of animals or plants, etc., being able to uh, become resistant to that, to them. Is that going to be something that we sort of see play out with RNA sprays as well as they're developed? Yeah, it's definitely a risk. And that's something that scientists are paying a lot of attention to right now as we develop these sprays so we don't end up with similar kinds of problems. Now, one of the good things about RNA sprays is because you're targeting individual genes, you can quite easily change the code that you're looking for and make it target a different gene within the organism. So maybe instead of, as I said, targeting cell reproduction, instead you say you change the way the cell um, harnesses energy and and you can kill it in, in a few different ways. So you've got options for changing how these sprays work. Now, There's a bigger problem, though, in that the method in which these sprays are delivered will probably be the same no matter how their mechanism changes, no matter how the gene they're acting on changes. And so there's a really big problem if bugs or pests or, you know, fungi or whatever start to become resistant to the way that these sprays are delivered to them and they stop taking up this RNA. And we know that this is theoretically possible in the lab. So some scientists took a bunch of those potato beetles that I spoke about and they dumped, you know, a whole bunch of this uh, RNA pesticide on them. And eventually they found out that, yeah, so these beetles stop taking up this spray. So that's a a pretty big problem if this becomes replicated in the field. But there are also a couple of other problems as well. And they're actually kind of basic, right? One of these problems is that a benefit of RNA is it breaks down quickly in the environment. So you don't have the same kind of buildup that you get with other types of chemical pesticides. But that's a problem because you need to make sure it sticks onto plants or you know, can get to the part of the plant that you want, you know, that a bug is eventually going to eat. And if it breaks down in the environment and say, if it just washes off the plant, that's really difficult because it will never end up uh, getting into that plant or getting into that animal, sorry. So we've got these kind of two problems, potentially resistance developing and also this delivery mechanism. And we're not quite quite sure how well exactly they'll work when it comes to the field until we kind of solve both these problems. Yeah, and as you say, like some of the trials and things are sort of underway in early stages and the the actual use case of this is going to be probably a little bit further down the line, which means that we're definitely still going to be using chemical pesticides for quite a while. But how do scientists sort of see um, this type of RNA sprays? Are they going to be something that can replace chemical pesticides or are we going to be stuck with them uh, really, I guess, forever? Yeah, I think that this is definitely a addition to chemical pesticides. I think that it's really tempting to say, oh, great, we've got this new type of pesticide and it breaks down really quickly and it's 
doesn't seem to be harmful to other animals and it's really targeted. It's great. It can replace pesticides. The people that I've spoken with have said, you know, it's probably not this silver bullet. It's probably not going to fix everything. And actually, the sprays that we're seeing developed at the moment, quite often they're being targeted so they will be mixed with other pesticides. So a farmer just has to put one spray on and maybe it's going to work on several levels as a chemical. And also there's this RNA spray. So it kind of gives a double, double whammy to, to bugs. And also, there are certain benefits to RNA that mean it might work at better at certain types of fields, so at, the, at certain times of year, sorry. So at the moment, there are regulations that say you basically can't spray crops very close to harvest because you need to make sure there's not a certain amount of chemicals when it comes to, you know, getting those plants into the food chain. But actually, because RNA breaks down really quickly, maybe we'll be able to spray that really close to the harvest time, or maybe we'll be able to spray it and actually farmers and workers can go out in the field very soon after that crop has been sprayed. So people are saying it's maybe a bit of an addition. It's kind of a bonus around the edges. It's not, we're not exactly saying goodbye to chemical pesticides forever. And if that wasn't enough chat about mould... You can read loads of words about mould, but include a link to the story in the show notes. So do go and check it out. Our second story this week is about a man who became a meme, who then became a content machine. We're talking about Salt Bay, who's been around for years, but has shot to even greater fame in recent weeks. So first up, Amelia, who is Salt Bay? Yeah, regrettably, Salt Bay was not born Salt Bay. His real name is Nusret Gokce, um, and he's a 38-year-old Turkish chef. Um, and in 2017, he went viral after someone filmed a video of him elaborately sprinkling salt all down his elbow onto his steak in this cascading waterfall uh, and got christened Salt Bay. Um, just to backtrack, he had fairly humble beginnings. His father worked in mining and he himself had to leave school when he was 12 um, to be a butcher's apprentice so that he could make money for his family. Um, and by 2017, he did already have his own steak restaurant in Istanbul. Uh, but going viral for, for the way you sprinkle salt obviously creates more opportunities uh, in the modern world. So he started opening more and more restaurants across the globe. Um, so a year after he went viral, he opened a steak restaurant in New York in 2018. Um, so yeah, and, and ever since then, he's sort of continued, um, on this trajectory of internet fame. Today, he has 40 million followers, probably more by the time I finish this sentence, because it just seems to be going up and up. Um, I think because he knows how to capitalize, he knows how to get that attention. So in September, 2018, he first, uh, struck upon this idea of garnishing a steak with gold dust in his Dubai restaurant. Um, and that got 4.4 million views in 24 hours, um, causing a little bit of controversy because I think, uh, you know, obviously with the world being the way it is, uh, not everybody thinks it's a great idea to eat gold. Um, but again, this just kind of led to this increased following, this increased um, power, increased restaurants across the world. Um, and in September, two months ago, he opened his first London restaurant, which is his 14th restaurant overall. Um, and that is why he is back in the news. Um, he basically for his insanely expensive menu of, of gold wrapped items, including an £100 gold wrapped burger an £830 gold-wrapped tomahawk steak and a £50 cappuccino, which has a little bit of gold, edible gold sprinkled on the top. Um, so as you kind of would expect, this, this caused the, the usual headlines that you'd expect to generate, which is kind of local London restaurant reviewers 
uh, going there and and having a little bit of fun, basically ripping it apart. Because unfortunately, who who would guess uh, that much edible gold does not actually taste very good, or indeed of anything, apparently according to these reviews. Um, and obviously, the price uh, does not match the experience for a lot of people. So you got the kind of expected coverage in in local London newspapers in the Evening Standard and Time Out and things. Uh, and, and Jay Rayner did a column in The Observer where he kind of deliberately didn't review the restaurant and he went and bought an £8.50 kebab and set up a little table outside the restaurant uh, in some kind of strange form of kebabby protest. Um, but then something really weird happened, which is basically that the headlines kept coming um, and there were 774 stories, separate stories, globally about Salt Bay in the six weeks after he opened his London restaurant, 774. Um, so we at Wired have christened this the, the Salt Bay Industrial Complex, uh, where this content just seems to be generating these clicks and, and becoming profitable. And as you say, has become this entire machine. And it's, it's not just headlines, uh, it is social media as well. Um, a video of, of somebody eating at Salt Bay's restaurant in Salt Bay, as well as sprinkling salt, he now kind of elaborately slices his steaks in front of his customers and dangles them into, into their mouths. Um, and a video about a month and a week after the London restaurant opened kind of got ripped off Instagram and put on Twitter where people were mocking it. Um, and it got 1.7 million views, um, which is crazy when you think about the fact that this isn't new. The first time he wrapped a steak in gold was 2018, uh, according to the outline, the average meme has a lifespan of four months. So I did a little bit of maths and it's 57 months since Salt Bay first went viral and it's 37 months since he first wrapped a stake in gold. So for all intents and purposes, he shouldn't be generating the same viral outrage, but the industrial complex rolls on. So this is the question. Why, right? It's easy to be dismissive or to sneer or just say, oh, you know, this is just a guy doing some stupid stuff on the internet and a load of stupid people are sharing it and clicking on it. But 774 separate headlines in a six-week period. And a lot of this is local news. Now, we've got a lot of listeners all over the world and we're talking about local UK news, but this has been you know, quite a, a big hit around the world as well. But obviously something here is really striking a chord with publications and the people who read them. So what stories are being written about this guy and why is it all getting so weird? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the key question. So for contrast, just to see, you know, because maybe 774 stories isn't that unusual. Maybe that's just our new content age. Um, I looked up how many articles were written about McDonald's new vegan burger, which launched in the UK last week, and that inspired 48 articles. Uh, whilst in contrast, six weeks after the restaurant had opened last week, there were 149 articles written about Salt Bay. Um, so clearly there's something here that is generating all of this intrigue and these clicks. Um, and as you said, it, local news sites seem to love it and they really kind of capitalise on these tenuous connections. So two headlines that I've got here are Huddersfield Instagram O'Donnell sisters splashed out on a £630 steak at Salt, Salt Bay's London restaurant. Um, which is basically just people spend money on food. Um, and Salt Bay has a rival as popular northeast steakhouse offers gold covered steak at a fraction of the price. Tell a lie. Three headlines. This is my favourite because who asked? Bolton chef lampoons Salt Bay's gold cover covered steaks. So these are incredibly tenuous local connections where someone from around here ate at the restaurant. Someone from around here doesn't like the restaurant, um, which... 
I think is just tapping into this north-south divide um, that exists in the country where people um, think of everybody in the south as a metropolitan elite and everybody in the, in the north as down to earth. Um, but then again, there is this kind of uh, mainstream tabloid culture around it in the Sun and the Daily Mail. So the Sun, the Sun actually has a logo that they'll, they'll put on stories that says Salt Bay Latest in big blue capital letters and an unbelievable tag that they tag the stories with. Um, and the coverage is insane, the kind of coverage you would expect of celebrities. So uh, Salt Bay looks un- unrecognisable in Friends' pre-fame photo. And the, a particularly bizarre one from Time Out. This is not a drill. Salt Bay is in the park feeding pigeons. Uh, so people are really following him almost as if he is uh, a very big celebrity. Um, and yeah, I think it really tips down to this kind of north-south London class divide that has existed obviously for many many years and Salt Bay for some reason has really tapped into our national psyche with his gold stakes um, that makes us want to read more and more about him and what he's doing next. So many people would absolutely kill for this well well, maybe not kill but you know (laughs) that they they pay a lot of money um, and hire in a lot of expertise to get this level of notoriety and so we're not just talking about some random guy who's really popular kind of flavor of the month you know as you said this has been going on for a good couple of three years now and he keeps on repeating not the same trick but almost like reinventing himself and one-upping himself so obviously we all know who salt bay is because of that original viral video and as you said, this isn't even his first restaurant, nor is it the first restaurant to sell steaks wrapped in gold. So what's different this time? What's the magic formula that you think this guy has cracked that's allowing him to get such a lot of publicity? I mean, we're talking about it right now, right? So we've fallen mm. into the trap, but what's mm. he doing? Yeah, it's really interesting because actually before he opened the New York restaurant, he opened a Miami Miami restaurant in, in November 2017. And it didn't really seem to inspire much more than kind of those few local review stories that we talked about that were in London as well. But it stopped there. It didn't generate the 774 following headlines. And similarly, when it opened in New York, again, there were those reviews, New York Times, New York Post, kind of sneering reviews um, and commentary. But um, when Luke Evans kind of went on the Late Late Show with James Corden and they did a little segment where they talked about Salt Bay and his experience going to the restaurant, it got on YouTube, the clip has about just over 200,000 views, which, you know, some of these videos that are being tweeted of Salt Bay recently are kind of blowing out the water. So something has changed in the last few years that that means that he is, um, you know, the time is ripe for Salt Bay more now than ever. Um, I mean, I think maybe it's particularly offensive to Londoners um, that this has tipped the world over the edge and, and and we have just become unendingly annoyed by it. And as I said, the North-South divide really seems to be kind of tapping into that class thing. Um, I think what didn't obviously started the whole thing was somebody tweeted a receipt um, of their dining experience about three days after the restaurant had opened. And actually, nobody has checked to see if this receipt um, is indeed true and where it came from, but that doesn't matter on the internet, that's never mattered, Um, which showed that they spent £1,800 in the restaurant. um, And that got over 25,000 likes on Twitter and lots and lots and lots of different headlines and stories. Um, 
particularly, I think, not just because of the amount, but how it added up was extremely bizarre. So £630 steak. Okay, we've seen that before. £9 Coke, £11 Red Bull and £12 sweet corn, £23 salad. I think the Red Bulls, an £11 Red Bull, I think was particularly offensive to people. So I think that kind of started things and whether post-pandemic we all just wanted something to be annoyed about and post-lockdown, you know, we're generating new conversations about how much we spend in restaurants, who knows. But since then, there's been this entire kind of subset of content where people are just sharing receipts from the restaurant and journalists are writing up headlines about these receipts from the restaurant, again, without really verifying them because one one claims that somebody spent £37,000 which, I mean, I'm not very good at math, so I don't want to times how many £630 steaks that is. But it, it feels like it would be a fair few, so I'm not so sure if that one is real. But I don't think it really matters. And it's so self-perpetuating now because um, they just newspapers will just run headlines being essentially a celebrity ate here. So you've got Wayne Rooney took his four sons and spent X amount. Gemma Collins went in and spent £1,450. And that, for whatever reason... Uh, is a story. And I think, again, it taps into that kind of us versus them uh, thing that we have going on in this country and, and in general when it comes to wealth, I suppose, um, which is that you can either define yourself as, as someone would, that would spend that much on steak or as someone who is appalled by the by the mere idea. So it's kind of a culture war, but a fairly innocent um, and, and um, exaggerated one that I think is enjoyable for people to kind of dive into. £37,000 is 58 £630 steaks. Okay, um, wow. I, I guess maybe they went into the wine cellar and mm-hmm. ordered That's something true. a little bit mm-hmm. special. I guess that if, if it's £11 for Red Bull, I mm. dread to think what it is <laughs> for um, something with a good vintage. Anyway, that's true. Th- there's something else going on here as well. Um, and uh, when we were talking about this story and you were reporting it, there was this little voice in the back of my head going... It, it, is, is this really a, a big deal? Is this guy doing something that no one else is able to do to this level? Or, or are we kind of bigging him up unnecessarily? And I think the, the, the reporting that you've done kind of shows that he's tapped into something in in a really clever way that no one else has been able to do. So, you know, it it, it is worth highlighting because, as I said a couple of times, everyone wants to do this, but not a lot of people are very good at it. And you you can see hundreds, thousands, millions of people making clumsy attempts to go viral or to become um, to become famous for just five minutes. And, and this guy has managed to keep himself famous for years and years. Um, and something that he's really focusing on now, it seems, is this confluence of TikTok really taking off and restaurants designing themselves with social media in mind. And his restaurant is really, really TikToky, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it might be a stretch to call him as an individual a content genius um, because his his current shtick on Instagram is to say the word cappuccino in a really long, drawn out way and take a sip of cappuccino of a cappuccino. And there are about a hundred different videos of him doing this. Um, so I don't think he's immune from kind of trying to hold on to that viral fame um, in extremely strange ways. But yes, the restaurants themselves, whether that's the clever marketing team or Salt Bay's vision, seem to have really tapped into the fact that when we go out to eat now, 
Uh, we want a little something more than just food. We want an experience that we can showcase online. Um, so I had an interesting conversation with a TikToker for my article um, whose username is, is Keezy, three E's and two Z's, um, a 24-year-old from San Francisco. And she's gained 37,000 followers on TikTok essentially just by posting Salt Bay content. She has other kind of travel videos in there, but they get about 600 views and her Salt Bay videos get, the most popular one has 13.4 million views. And what's happening in that video is what I discussed earlier, which is Salt Bay is slicing his gold steak and he's um, dangling it around and this this flamboyant show. And every time Salt Bay opens a new restaurant, he goes there for a few weeks. So he spent six weeks in London. And and when you're ordering the dish, you're actually ordering Salt Bay himself to come to your table and put on his elaborate show. Um, so you can get your content and your clicks and be part of this, this machine. Um, and so it was to the point where this TikToker told me um, that she was in the toilet when she's been a, actually a dozen times to his restaurants, uh, mainly in Istanbul. Uh, and once she was in the toilet when the appetizer came out, um, and so the staff brought a second appetizer out so that they could do the elaborate slicing and cutting and show for her so she didn't miss it. So clearly they know there that that's their USP, that that's what they need to do um, to get the attention. Um, and, and the TikToker said he's social media gold. He understands people's need to generate content. Um, so, yeah, I think obviously he is more than happy to appear on camera, more than happy to kind of generate this hype. And people continue, for whatever reason, to want to film it. And there's an element to this, as you sort of alluded to, with the long, drawn-out cappuccino thing. And if you um, pay attention to his Instagram stories, he will share articles that have been quite critical of him and the way he goes about his business. For him, all publicity is is good publicity, which for some people might be incredibly stressful and tasteless. But for him, I guess it's it's all it's all fine. So even when it's obscure local newspapers running weird outrage bait about Londoners, for Salt Bay that's all good because it helps keep this content machine churning. Yeah, it's very strange. He'll screenshot, as you said, literally every single article about him and, and share it on his Instagram stories, no matter what it says. And I suppose the, the one benefit of the Salt Bay industrial complex and the interest in him is that it has actually started to generate some more serious reporting around um, how much he pays his his wait staff and, he, he, and some of the controversies around him kind of unfair practices when it comes to firing his staff, um, which again generates kind of fun is maybe not the right word, but interesting headlines. Uh, one, Salt Bay is hiring chefs and the hourly wage is the same price for corn on the cob. So contrasting this um, kind of extreme wealth on display in the restaurant with the staff that kind of put it all together. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like um, it, he... Yeah, I don't know if he thinks all publicity is good publicity. I don't know if he just doesn't bother to read a lot of the articles and just screenshots it because he likes the attention. But um, certainly there is kind of a, a little turning of the tide where um, people are kind of looking into him a little bit more seriously now. So he's had six weeks in the spotlight in the UK and done something fairly remarkable in, in terms of uh, the amount of coverage that he's managed to generate. But the content machine must roll on. So is is this just a blip or is it part of a longer term strategy to take I think strategies maybe being a bit generous right but to take what he's done in London and repeat the trick as he opens more restaurants around the world 
Yeah, it definitely does seem to, he seems to have a formula. So he's he's just left London um, last weekend to open a new restaurant in Saudi Arabia. And again, he will probably be there for a few weeks being the side dish served along the steak with his um, wonderful displays. So I think he seems to know that by being there and generating that hype, he can get those customers through the doors. And I mean, I don't really know how many £630 steaks you need to, to sell to be set for life, but he prob- probably uh, is nearly there. Um, but it's funny because the even though he's left London, um, the headlines haven't stopped. Um, the stories haven't stopped. There's new ones every day. Um, and, and also like really weird clickbait around it. So the My London website um, headlined his departure as Salt Bait abandons ludicrously priced London restaurant after just six weeks. Well, it's not abandoned. He's just gone on to his next restaurant. <laughs> but there's this sort of strange like hype and culture around it that weirdly enough, we don't seem to be tiring of. Um, so, yeah, I think there's more to come and we'll just have to see what he does next and where he goes next. Or not, we could just ignore him and he might we go could. away, right? We um, could. <laughs> I'm not but, sure that's how the internet works. Yeah, that doesn't, doesn't seem like it's within our powers. Podcast.wired.co.uk yeah. with your thoughts on £630 stakes, the Salt Bay Industrial Content Complex. Anything on your mind, podcast.wired.co.uk. Time for a few emails now. I'm going to kind of roll three or four into one. Seth from Cambridge writes in with a suggestion for the Facebook meta naming fudge that we were talking about last week. Surely the obvious name, he says, would be feta. Hopefully the Greek cheese industry wouldn't be too put off with such an association. So herein, we're going to change the style guide. It won't be Facebook. It won't be meta. It will be feta. Perhaps not, but I like the gag anyway. Seth also writes that he's listened to our humble podcast since the start of 2020 and that the recent departure of Vicky and Natasha was a very sad moment. Well, we definitely agree. We miss our friends and colleagues, but Seth has a suggestion. I'd like to kindly ask that the remaining four of you never leave Wired and continue podcasting indefinitely. Matt Burgess, your thoughts to working with me for eternity. Does podcasting indefinitely just mean like one long, (laughs) never-ending podcast that we're just going to be on and never allowed to leave? um, Yes. Like just 24-7? Yes. Well, I'm down for it, yeah. Okay, cool. So um, we'll never stop this show and no one can ever leave. Uh, actually, we, we probably won't do that, but I, I take the point. Um, we'll, hopefully no one will leave again uh, too soon. Uh, finally, oh no, not finally, a couple more. Nina writes in with a correction. Last week I said that Google renamed itself Alphabet. As Nina points out, Alphabet is an umbrella company of which Google is a subsidiary. And that's why we still call Google Google. I mean, it's, it's a fair point and well made, but... Where does Alphabet end and Google begin? Right, This is my question. I'd argue that the whole thing is still called Google and the Alphabet, a bit like Meta, is basically meaningless. But it's, I mean, it's, it's not the most exciting point in the world. So let's move swiftly on to James, who is not me, and writes in to share his dismay at Zuckerberg's merry march into the metaverse. James writes that the most bonkers thing about Zuckerberg trying to foist his unwanted metaverse upon us is that at the moment the world teeters on the brink of environmental collapse, he thinks we should all put on VR headsets and jump into a virtual one. He goes on to say that it's like Zuckerberg watched Ready Player One and saw it as an aspiration rather than a warning. I mean, it's, it's definitely dumb, but I don't think we could expect the metaverse to go away anytime soon. So expect us to be annoyed about it again pretty soon. Matt Burgess, you've got one more email to wrap us up. 
Yeah, our final email is from Julio, who writes to say that they're a big fan of the podcast and and fortunately they're only catching up with the late uh, October episodes and just discovered that Natasha is leaving and probably already left by now, which, yeah, is the case. Um, and they just wanted to let us know that they started listening at the start of the pandemic and our familiar voices have kept them company through this strange and sometimes lonely time. Uh, and yeah, the, they were sad that uh, Natasha was leaving the podcast as well as uh, Vicky and just wanted to thank us for, for putting on the show. Well, it's very, very kind. Um, we'll keep on putting on the show uh, and hopefully nobody else will leave too soon um, because it would make us all very sad. And also we're running out of people to come on the podcast. <laughs> Podcast.wire.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show uh, with um, letters of sorrow for the departures of Vicky and Natasha if you're trawling back through the archives. Um, I've, there isn't going to be a plot twist. They're, they're, they're not coming back. They're, they're gone forever. Um, but do write in podcast.wired.co.uk with anything that you want to get in touch about that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week have a good one goodbye bye Bye.